now the podcast starts. Hello, faithful listener. This is the podcast in which we talk about horror. Sometimes we talk about other things, and sometimes we swear. In this episode, you're going to be hearing from all five of our podcast hosts at different points, but not right now. Right now, it is just me, T.D. Velasquez, but as always, you can call me Dan, and I am here to wish you a very happy Halloween, as this episode is intended to be going out just before Halloween weekend. So I hope you've got a wonderful spooky time lined up. Now, the main feature of this episode is going to be a revisitations discussion of the British werewolf movie Dog Soldiers from 2002. Stella, Kirsty, Ian and myself recorded a chat about this a while back and I hope you'll find it particularly interesting, especially from Ian who's got some rather personal revelations to disclose concerning his relationship to this particular movie. Um, I think we all recommend it and I think the discussion pretty much spoiled the movie as these revisitation discussions tend to do so. So um, if you've never seen Dog Soldiers, go away and watch it and um, and then come back and hear the podcast. Last time I checked, Dog Soldiers was on BritBox and I think sometimes it appears on um, all four as well. So check those two places. Later in the episode, you'll also be hearing from our friend Howard. He and I will be delving once more into the bag of death and producing a movie completely at random to discuss. So no spoilers for what will that will be there. Um, and then after that, I'll be back at the very end of the episode to discuss some recommendations and some opportunities for streaming and broadcast horror over the Halloween weekend. So don't miss that. All right. Enjoy Dog Soldiers. And I'll be back on my own to speak to you at the end. Here is the trailer for the movie in question. One of the most explosive, brutal, and purely enjoyable horror debuts since The Evil Dead. Genuinely frightening. Jaws, Aliens, and Predator with a werewolf twist. Absolutely brilliant. Thrilling. Exciting. Scary. I don't scare that easy. And funny. I'm sold. A horror film with bite. You are. Search! I'm in the closet! A bitch of a werewolf movie. Wait it! Dog soldiers. It'll blow your house down. That was the trailer for 2002's Dog Soldiers, and here with me to talk about it are Ian, Kirsty, and last but not least, as she is, I think, the biggest fan of the film on this podcast, Stella. <laughs> Hello, Hello, everybody. Hello. So this is a movie that we all have history with. We've all seen it before. Um, we're going to talk about it as if the listener has seen it before, so... Spoilers from the, the get-go, if we may. 
Um, let's all talk about how we originally saw it and how we originally felt about it. We've all obviously re-watched it in preparation for this recording, but what was our original experience? Uh, Stella, if you don't mind, I think I'll start with you. <laughs> um, yes, it's what probably my favourite werewolf text really not necessarily just film um i think it really struck a chord with me when i watched it in 2000 2002 did you say so long ago um because i don't think i'd really encountered a werewolf film that i mean apologies to any big werewolf fans but i'd not really encountered a werewolf film that I was really into before so this was the first werewolf film or text that I saw that I was like oh this is great it's really really funny the cast is really good I really cared about everyone and then the bit at the end where she says not the end it's that time of the month I just thought was hilarious (laughs) when I saw it way back then and then I studied it on my degree when we did uh, the horror module on my degree I wrote an essay on it so it's always um you know had a nice place in my heart but i just like really like the way that it sets up the the masculinity and the femininity of of the squaddies and the femininity of the monsters or the werewolves and how it sort of it's a really interesting exploration of masculinity in crisis and a load of men with no sort of war or real fight to define them and then when they come to have to have a fight they're all a bit all over the place not really sure what they're doing and it's a, also a really interesting fight between sort of sadism and masochism that you've got with um, Captain Ryan and, and Spoon. It's just all really good. There's just loads I could say right off the bat, but I'll, I'll let other people speak first because there's a lot of notes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so just before we move on from you then, Stella, did you see it when it came out at the cinema? Yes. Right. Yeah. I think we probably yeah. all did. Uh, I, did you? Here's the thing, I've been trying to remember and I don't know. Alright, because I saw it came out when we were at uni. But I don't remember seeing it at the cinema. And that doesn't mean that I didn't see it at the cinema because I saw a lot of stuff at the cinema, particularly in that period. <laughs> um and it just means that I just I that actually my stronger impression of it actually came later. Um and so when I was doing my my PGC, um, it was one of the films that um, one of the teachers in the department used to teach horror specifically. Um, so this is more, this is 2006, um, so a little bit later. Um, and and consequently, because I was sort of observing his lessons, I got, to, you know, to kind of be in there and with those kind of explorations as part of that repeatedly and then it was a film that I think kind of in my first couple of years of teaching because I'd seen him teach um, and I was familiar with it I used as well I think um so yeah so I don't have a strong kind of you know recollection of the first time that I saw it but I do remember really enjoying it um as part of that you know kind of teaching and learning experience um, so yeah, so not quite the same, I think, as being in the cinema. But yeah, I remember kind of yeah enjoying it and particularly enjoying the, you know, the kind of banter of it and the way that the wells were were visualised. And I remember thinking, not very deeply, I think, at the time yeah. about the gender politics of it, but being aware of that there were gender politics um, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't, yeah, <laughs> don't have the kind of passionate connection it's to in, it that you do, Stella. But I, I, it's in my yeah. um, like comfort yeah. horror box. One of the horror films I'll put on if I'm if I want something comforting to watch. Yeah, and it's funny. I was, I was just thinking, looking at the kind of year. So it was two thousand and two, wasn't it? So I think for me, um, you know, kind of around that era, we get there's a bit of an explosion, isn't there, of werewolf stuff? Because we get ginger snaps, mm. which oh, yeah. it was 2000. <laughs> and actually, I think I had that was much more profound for me because I think it was just, you know, mm. playing with some of those ideas about the kind of, you know, femininity and monstrosity and, um, yeah. and female biology. Um, and then <laughs> 2003 was Underworld, which of course had the. Yeah. Oh God. Um, which obviously was not a not not a great film. I remember a, a college friend of ours or a university friend of ours. Um, I don't know if you remember this, Dan, saying oh, it was related through you. Like, I think well, I, we, I certainly remember us having conversations about it. Yeah, our friend Tim saw Underworld and said something like, "I excuse my language, fucking hate it, Underworld. It's the kind of film Kirsty would make." <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, I've never seen. I've never seen wow. Underworld. Yeah, which actually, to be honest, at the time I, I, I took, I took. But I mean, I think the reason you see the kind of werewolves in Underworld is that they, um, first of all, the kind of the the werewolf it was, t- it was played by Michael Sheen, and I love Michael Sheen as an actor. But I've never found him attractive except for in that film. Okay, interesting. So, so that that is a memory of you know early two thousands werewolves. Well, Ace but somehow yeah. dog soldiers get kind of lost in in it a little bit i think anyway <laughs> yeah just uh i can't remember that specific comment kirsty uh, to give the benefit of the doubt to tim i think he although maybe i remember him talking about a different film and describing it as being like it was directed by kirsty if she had no talent which is a, okay. kind of more of a backhanded compliment well, yeah well i think yeah. to be honest you know, it was 20 years ago now, so, um, you yes. know, okay, <laughs> like I probably misremembered it, but um, still, that's what exists in my memory, anyway, but yeah. <laughs> no, and, and fair enough, but uh, I certainly remember the two of us talking about it and thinking and going, we could have done better than that, but anyway, that's not the film we're here no. to talk about. Um, Ian, what's your memory of your first encounter with dog soldiers and i suspect you've got a good story to tell well my um my encounter with it is hearing about i was i was editing i was the editor of a magazine a listings magazine a sort of timeout ripoff in newcastle upon tyne uh of which i was at that time i was lots of people from the south invaded the city because of lots of arts council money going because of the uh, bid for, to become City of Culture, which is a whole other story. But anyway, I ended up editing this magazine. Um, and because of I was already doing film reviews and stuff, I basically just kept doing that a lot and uh, and keeping on top of all the movie stuff and spending as much time down in London watching movies as I could and going up and down on the train. Um, but I can't even remember when, but somebody, I think a press release just came through saying, somebody in Newcastle has made a film and he was called Neil Marshall. So I went to interview him and Keith, um, who's the producer. Um, oh, what was his name? I'm having to look at my thing now. That's awful. Um, Keith Bell. Um, obviously Neil Marshall's a lot more famous than Keith Bell these days. Um, but, um, but yeah, I went to meet them both 
because I'd heard they were making a film, and I, I wonder if I was actually the first journo to ever interview them, because I think even like the local newspapers hadn't quite got round to interviewing them yet. Um, but anyway, I mm. I interviewed them, and they were lovely, and we had a really good long chat over some coffees. And then when I was in London, I went to see the film, and I didn't like it that much. Um, <laughs> And like a dickhead, I, I didn't go, I didn't play the game. You know, I saw, I used to see them out parties <laughs> and I didn't, you know, there was this wonderful cinema in Newcastle called Side Cinema, which I think holds the record as the smallest cinema in the country or something. It's got 50 seats of cinema called Side Cinema. And we used to go down there and watch. It used to, it had a 16 mil projector so they could get loads of quite obscure films, but on 16 mil so they didn't, you know, so there were all these 16 mil, I think there were 16 mil. Anyway, so there was like a movie club and it was a really cool scene. Newcastle was really, really good city. Um, and so I used to see Neil down there. And then when I actually went to, I saw his, I saw his, uh, I saw Dog Soldiers at a screening, press screening in London. And I wrote an honest review, which was the most stupid thing I think I've ever done. Instead of just going, yeah, it's great, he's from Newcastle. So um, my review, which I shall find, gave it two stars, <laughs> oh, no. like an idiot. And even the review reads like a three-star review. I was young and stupid, that's all I can say. <laughs> and, uh, I shall read it out because it's quite short. But the next time I saw Neil, he blanked me completely. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> That was the last time I spoke to Neil Marshall. Um, so I won't read it all, but I. Um, what did I do? Yeah, the I basically said it was good, and this is like the, and then I got to carefully constructed tension is shattered when the beasts first attack. And with the first OTT shot of glistening intestines, we're suddenly thrust into Spatagore comedy. Nothing wrong with that when it's done right. Um, Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson. <laughs> but here the thrills and spills, few and far between, are completely at odds with the serious intent conveyed through the naturalistic acting. Had this setup been played straight, it could have been a tense chiller, a sort of aliens with werewolves. But falling between the stools of splatter comedy and serious horror, it ends up like its monsters as an unhappy hybrid. Sporad sporadically entertaining with a very strong first 40 minutes, but it could have been so much better. Two stars. Dick. And then... Ian. And, <laughs> and then I saw it at the world premiere, which was, at New which was in Newcastle, with Kevin McKidd and I think Liam, what's his face, and, and Neil blanking me again. And lots of other of my friends in the magazine and everyone fucking loved it and i kind of went mm, i might have been a bit hard on it but i still would have given it three stars i should have given it three stars the review i wrote was three stars but i also should have played the game and just given it four stars and raved about it because then you know then we'd have been supporting neil marshall in the beginning of his career um but um but it's weird because I, because because I sort of people knew I'd written that review and been blanked by him. I've been at film festivals since then as guests and things, and people have kept me out of the room, like, "Oh, Neil Marshall's there, so we better keep Ian and 
Neil separate, and I, I'm sure Neil doesn't give two shits or even remember who I am. But the fact, the fact that some people have kept me out of the room from him, so as not to upset Neil Marshall potentially, it's just has just made it like one of those little things of if only I'd just slightly lied in the review when I was <laughs> in my twenties. <laughs> but anyway, um, but we can talk about how I feel about Dog Soldiers now later. Um, but um, yeah, so that's my Dog Soldiers story. It's a good story. <laughs> it's a, not, I've just reread it. And it's not a bad two-page interview um, with loads of cool stuff that I don't think I've read in many other interviews since because they were literally just going, "Is this film going to work?" Like, you know, like no, you know, they weren't anybody. They were just two guys who made a movie who no one had heard of, who hadn't like who said at the end of my article, "We haven't sold a ticket yet, so we don't know how it's going to go." But if you think about it, though, Ian, he follows up Dog Soldiers with The Descent, which is a proper tense chiller. The Descent is fucking amazing. Absolutely. So, you know, maybe on some level, he digested <laughs> some of your, your <laughs> yeah. comments. Oh, yeah, it's all down because to that's, oh, entire career. You know, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so. oh, yeah. Well, they always say, listen to, listen to critics and know what they're talking about. Not don't listen to just mm-hmm. any critic. Most critics are twats, but occasionally somebody will say something you don't want to hear that you need to hear. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know if yeah. me knocking off a fucking review in ten minutes is probably the thing. Anyway. This is the first time I've ever admitted it was really me because I always say because I put a I put a false name, and I always say it was the reviewer who didn't like it. And what am I supposed to do? Make the decision to tell him no your opinion doesn't count because I want mm. to keep Neil Marshall happy but in reality mm-hmm. I had complete control over that review because uh, it was me what wrote it <laughs> so. and in the moment we have a, a revelation that can be used as a sort of clickbaity line for the podcast yeah. episode when it goes live <laughs> yes. let's let's tag Neil Marshall in this tweet <laughs> yeah what did what did Ian do to Neil Marshall <laughs> <laughs> Should I just just looking at this magazine has just made me realise like my life back then was I mean I'm like my life now but my life back then was fun in that the dog soldiers bit doesn't even get flagged up on the cover or anything and all there's all the I mean I've interviewed Gomez and Graham Fellows and Meg Ryan and Jim Caviezel and this is all just in the space of a month plus all the other stuff that was going on the carousing and wow. different parties. And so the dog soldiers bit was was the quite fun bit I did. But, you know, I don't know. I, I did, you, you, you quite often interview quite a lot of people who've made a movie and then you never hear from them again. And Neil Marshall was very much the exception. And I could, I could totally see why, even then from having watched the movie. But I guess I wasn't wise enough to go to see I mean, we'll get onto this, but to see the the stuff I definitely didn't quite appreciate back then. You were young, Ian. Well, no, I was twenty. I was twenty nine, so it's not the same way as you know when we've been doing stuff and I haven't seen it since I was nineteen. I was very different at nineteen. Twenty nine, I quite just quite most of that review. I still um, I still I still sort of think, yeah, that's kind of how I feel watching Dog Soldiers. With caveats, with with with, but anyway, we we, we can get onto that. I was trying to give you an out there, Ian, but never mind, you didn't take it. It's fine. Um, I was twenty nine. That's like saying 
that's like saying, well, you know, when Donald Trump said about grabbing pussies, he was 70. At 29, you are, um, you are, I mean, everyone changes, but at 29, I was, I am the same person I am now in lots of ways. Well, I must say, one of the other things to finish off the how embarrassing, how embarrassing the story is, is uh, the, the, the title, the jokey title I came with, and I remember doing it so, so tired, and it's possible, and it still haunts me because it's the shittest title I ever came up with. For some reason, that's the, uh, that's the, that's the headline. Where meet again, not even with an apostrophe. Oh my word! And it's like it's uh... just so shit. It's like the worst. So, <laughs> in a way, I think that's why Neil Marshall just went, "Who the fuck is this asshole? Look at that horrible, horrible thing that's gone to print." And uh, and I remember, I remember realizing I'd made an error, like on the train on the way back from the office, and it was too late. It had gone to print. Going, well, that was awful. And, and so we used to not sleep for like two days. Like when it was when we were putting it to bed, because you know, Apple Macs were like like steam powered back then, and they'd crash. And you know, nowadays I could do this whole magazine that we did on my laptop, but back then you had a designer with a Apple that felt like it was any minute now it might crash, and then it'd crash and you'd lose everything because mm-hmm. you hadn't saved like a twat. And uh, yeah, so. Uh, but uh, yeah, one one thing that's me uh, being slightly slurry and drunk has reminded me that we've just come from the football, haven't we? We have indeed. Which is very uh, some of us have. Which is very uh, pertinent to the uh, to to dog soldiers. So England have just won two 0 Yeah, it's very very pertinent to the character of Joe in Dog Soldiers. Yeah, never got to see never got to see the match. I just think it's perfect that we've ended up yeah. doing Dog Soldiers today. And we were all going. Well, we'll do it when, when we've lost, when we've lost the penalties, when we'll, we'll you know, we'll, whenever the match finishes, and it finished bang on time, England two 0 which I think Joe, wow, Joe, Joe would like. <laughs> yeah, Joe, Joe would be yeah. pleased. So that's my way of saying I might, I might be a little bit drunk. He would yeah. use the whatever the opposite word of bone is. Um, flesh. <laughs> 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 I think you say that. <laughs> One of my favourite bits of the movie, by the way, is is where Megan says, "What does bone mean?" and, and they explain it, and he says, "Not very good." <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'll just quickly give my um, memories of the first encountering yeah. this movie, which is, is not as in depth as Ian's. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll talk about meeting Sean Pertwee for this later. <laughs> <laughs> Blimey. Clang. Clang. Um, yeah, so it came out when uh, Kirsty and I were both at Sheffield Hallam University doing film, and I remember seeing it in the showroom cinema, which was the university cinema. Uh, and, and actually, apart from I the fact that. that we did see it, my main memory of the evening is also derived from comments made by our friend Tim. <laughs> um, one thing he said, because we saw it together... He said to me, the werewolf POV shots were very thrilling, weren't they? I remember, I remember <laughs> that. And he, But he also said, I didn't like the bit where the dog was pulling out his guts. Their, <laughs> their character reactions were all wrong, he said. 
God bless Tim. He's a friend. He's a friend of this podcast, and he's he, he's on the podcast on our unreleased episode about Star Wars, um, and and he's one of the most perceptive viewers of of movies that I've spoken to. But um, yeah, uh, that's. We didn't notice that was a bandage, and not as good. Oh, because <laughs> uh, but it oh, was yeah. it was a it was a thing. People kept making that mistake, and I remember it coming out at the um, at the press junket. I got to see this film about four times on the way to on the way to um, to just right. just to make me go oh wait, and liking it slightly more every time. I mean, shit, I shouldn't have written that with you. But at the press junket for it, it was like yet again people thought the dog pulling at the bandage was people pulling mm. at his intestine, and it just became this thing going. Yeah. That's probably our fault for the edit, but so many people see that and go, it's an intestine, and it's yeah. not. It's the bandage. <laughs> That the dog's pulling out. I mean, yeah, I've seen the film three times, and it's never occurred to me that it's not his intestine. So, so there we go. No, that's what I mean. It's not. And they were like, "It's," and they 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 kind of it became a joke. I remember Sean Pertwee and Neil Marshall both just going, "It's the bandage." <laughs> and now, now oh, I see it, and it's really obviously the bandage when she finally pointed out to you because intestines aren't flat and aren't bandages. Yes, fair enough. But, uh, well. It um, might be. Yeah, yeah. Called on. Well, yeah, but it became a it became a thing. But but anyway. And, well, they just got a special yeah. effect for cheap. <laughs> well, like many of them, yeah. Um, and the other thing I mainly remember about the movie, um, or the context of the movie, is that I was really excited about it at the time because uh, just because it was so rare for a British horror film to come out. I mean, this was. I think this was. Was this just after or just before, 28 days later? Mm, it's around about the same time. Early 2002, so I think it might be before. Because I was working at the same magazine. Yeah. There was a big explosion, wasn't there, in about this era of British horror, and British horror being awesome in relation to American stuff in particular. I don't like 28. 28 days later was 2002 as well. It started happening while we were at uni. Yeah, yeah. So Dark Soul just came out in, on May the 10th. According to my own magazine, I have in front of me. <laughs> yeah, I think that's correct. But I was working at the same magazine, and I remember not really looking 28 days later that much over. I think becoming a critic mate basically makes you hate things. And now I'm not a critic. I'm not more like, hey, movies are amazing. <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an epiphany. Maybe. Um, Another reason this movie is special to me is that it's one of the films that I lectured about on my first ever day uh, lecturing six formers on media things. Something that makes that day slightly less sweet to that memory is that it was also the last day that I've ever lectured on media <laughs> to six formers. Um, but nevertheless, I, I, I did enjoy kind of introducing uh, and exploring the, 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 the context um of British cinema at the time and explaining that to the the media students who were, you know, barely born when this movie was made. Um, and I found it quite shocking, actually, at kind of remembering the, the real state that the British horror film industry had got into because they asked me to pick three movies from three decades that were kind of British cult horror movies. And obviously I picked The Wicker Man from the 70s and then Hellraiser from the 80s. And when it came to the 90s, I was quite shocked to realise there was just nothing. I mean, there were films made, but, 
and Kirsty knows that Darkland's got some cinema screening. <laughs> oh, it's... Um, don't start me on that but um, but you know there was just nothing that was like culturally (laughs) significant or that broke through but what I realised with Dog Soldiers was that it was I think it was the impact of Lockstock um, and those kind of British gangster comedy movies that kind of led to Dog Soldiers happening and that's why Mm. we got Sean Pertwee who had been the lead in I think Love, Honour and Obey which was a a successful other critically panned um, kind of 1999 film and I, I think those gangster movies kind of the the effect that they had on horror was that they made people realise that m- multiple regional accents were not a barrier to international recognition and, and, and the British kind of regional sense of humour could be conveyed um, and therefore Dog Soldiers is set in Britain with with various British characters. They haven't felt the need to import American leads in, like in Hellraiser and, and many, many other examples. Yeah. Ironically, though, even though it's set in Britain, it's not made in Britain because it was so difficult to get funding for a horror movie and you know in this country those de- in those days so it's it's a, a UK Luxembourg co-production and it's filmed entirely in Luxembourg um but with a, a, an entirely british cast kind of beautifully chosen um yeah. i feel like one of the it's clear that the movie is kind of constructed as a homage to movies like alien and and aliens and predator and those kind of uh, Lost Patrol sort of um, body count horror action movies. And one of the lessons it's learned from those movies is, you know, have about six characters and make them all very distinct. Mm-hmm. And therefore you've got this this great cast of, of characters. Um, I think that would be a good thing to talk about. Um, does anybody else want to jump in and, and um, discuss any character or actor in particular? Because if you don't, I'll just claim that I want to talk about Spoon. <laughs> <laughs> I think for, for, for me, if, if I can kind of go, like Kevin McKidd, I think it's a, what, one of the few movies of his that where he's he's that I've seen where he's playing the lead. And he actually, I think particularly on this second watch, I thought, oh my God, like he should have had a bigger career as a kind of leading man because he feels like a really solid presence yeah, yeah. in the middle of it all. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And he's it's done nice all right, watch. though. It feels like he's yeah. disappeared because he's basically taking Grey's Anatomy money. Yeah, no, I know, and that, but uh, yeah, I mean, and then you realise yeah. there's eighteen fucking seasons and he's still on. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. But I, I think I, I, I don't watch Grey's Anatomy. No, I don't. I, I didn't. Yeah. Until I got married. <laughs> I didn't really know it existed. Yeah. Um, but now I go. Oh, that's where Kevin McKidd's been. Yeah. Now, now I see on Now TV. <laughs> um, he's still on it. He's still. He's still being lovely, and uh, and he's still acting and getting paid probably yeah. more than we can yeah. even th- dream of. No, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's a, a completely <laughs> reasonable right. good career path for him. I I just feel like I've missed him, or I would have appreciated ha- ha- having him in my wider movie landscape. Yeah, you know, but, and he's not done that, so I don't. Could have been a, I mean, yeah. he could have been a Bond. I think he's. Although, although, mm. although I always, I'm not much of a Bond fan. So I remember when Craig, um, Daniel Craig, became Bond. I was like, oh, I want him to carry on being in proper movies like the like the Mother, and not in stupid <laughs> movies like James Bond. 
But anyway, but, um, oh, but like like Kevin McKidd's I... amazing in Rome. He's had a in a, in a weird way. He's had the career that lots of actors are now fighting for, which is yeah HBO. Yeah, you know, being famous on HBO. Yeah, TV. prestige television. Fancy yeah. television. It wasn't as popular as it. It wasn't as kind of doesn't have, have the prestige, did it? But, but yeah, I think he's he's his his credits are full of you know really good TV. I mean, Grey's Anatomy is not my bag either, but but yeah. you know, it's uh, it's really really well it's made, very and, uh, and it's really well respected in the drama world. He's not on like wobbly set hospital drama. <laughs> Do we all know, by the way, that there was. Going to be a sequel to Dog Soldiers starring Kevin McKidd at one point? No. Well, because Neil Marshall told me. Reverse Ron Perkins. There's going to well, be a... There's, it's, I'm researching for this. There's still probably going to be a sequel at some point. But, um, but the big exciting thing was there was going to be a sequel because the whole setup is there that you know, that, that bit of exchange. Cause I remember Sean Pertwee sort of saying, it's all there. He's got it all planned. He's got all, you know, just telling us the press. Going, he's got, he's a genius, this bloke. He's got it all planned. Tell him, tell him. That line, you know, that line where she says, you know, now that you know this is true, now you know werewolves are true, mm. everything's true. So basically it gave them permission to have Kevin McKidd and any right. other survivors against whatever they planted next. A multi-monster universe, vampires. an extended Yay. universe, but <laughs> mm-hmm. it wasn't to be. But um, no, but, right. Well, it, but it was it it was in development for mm. some years though the the Kevin McKidd starring sequel, and I wonder if it fizzled out because he chose to go on a mm. TV centric career and he just wasn't available anymore. It was actually going to be directed by Rob Green for a while, mm. which would have made sense because he was the director of another very low-budget British war horror movie that came out while we were at uni and I saw at the showroom called mm-hmm. The Bunker. Would that, you know, that that one was n- did not have any kind of breakthrough, but Dog Soldiers mm-hmm. did. And, did that have Daniel Craig and, in it? It didn't, did it? Uh, it didn't, but it had Jack Davenport. Mm. It had... Uh, uh, Jason Fleming, it, it, like Dog Soldiers, you know, all the cast were like name actors because yeah. there was so little work in Britain at the time. I'm trying to think if there's something like that that Daniel Craig did. But I, no, I don't, I don't know so. why my brain went. Oh, was Daniel? Yeah, but Daniel, Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig weirdly went the other way. Daniel Craig, his big break, like Christopher Eccleston, was on Our Friends yeah, in the North. Yeah, and and yeah, yeah, which is great. I mean, Daniel, Daniel Craig, everyone sort of knew he was remarkable, but no one... But you just can't really tell, I guess, if, whose career is going to suddenly get ghost, you know, stratospheric. It's funny, I, I always hated him and found him a really boring actor until he was Bond. Then I decided I liked him. Yeah, I, I've, I mean... That probably says more about me than him. You're just contrary. <laughs> I love him in... Um, oh, God, what's it called? Um, the... Um, thing about love where he kisses Reese Evans. Um, oh, enduring love. Enduring love, yeah. Enduring no, love. Really I love him in that, and I absolutely love the mother. I can watch the mother over and over again. Um, which sounds weird. That's the one with Anne Reed, is it? 
yeah, with Anne Reed, the affair with between Anne Reed and and he plays such a horrible ass mm. with his Nazca lions tattoo and and it's brilliant. It's a brilliant performance from him and Anne Reed. Absolutely love it. That's why um, when he became Bond, I was a bit like, oh, that seems like a bit of a waste because <laughs> you know somebody like Pierce Brosnan, it's not a waste. It's like that's what he was born to do. But someone like Daniel Craig. It's like, no, you could fucking be a, an amazing Shakespearean actor and do some amazing Hollywood stuff. But do you have to go and just punch, you know, punch people on top of trains for a fucking living? Because uh, I'm, I'm not a big Bond <laughs> fan at all. But ironically, his Bond movies have been like the most watchable because of the Bourne identity. They at least, they at least sort of, started going, well, we need to up our game a bit and actually have some sort of story. So we're not just like watching a computer game. So you end up with, you know, so you, you end up with uh, with movies that actually have, actually have a, you know, a narrative structure that, you know, it's all fair. Well, Ian, but maybe off to, uh, we can have this conversation another time uh, in greater detail, I'm off sure. Topic. But... Um, <laughs> Let's go back to Dog Soldiers then, and I think actually we should go back to yeah. Stella. Stella, Stella, you love this movie, don't you? I do. I think many of us, I think all of us, love at least things in it. So we should we should talk about some of that stuff. Um, and Stella, is there anything you want to say particularly about any of the actors or characters? Um, um not well. Yeah, kind of. So. That my favourite points of discussion about the film is the way that it sets up the army guys and sort of the way that they banter between each other as being very overtly masculine. Like there's so many mentions of nuts and nads and bollocks all the time. One of them mentions, is it Spoon voices his fear of castration? Private Cooper says he's scared of women. Mm. Um, they're constantly talking about the football. England have just beat Germany. Yes, well done, everybody. Me, um, I did that. So they're set up as this very sort of <laughs> masculine group. And then the way that they're taken down by a overtly feminine monster, I just thought was, was glorious. And I think that use of gender politics, it was probably... Um, where I first started to understand film in this this way or to realise that I could read film in this way. And so that's why it's quite important to me. However, so you've got the lads all being very, very hyper-masculine, all talking about they want to get home and get into the bed with a hot woman and watch the football and all that kind of stuff. And then you've got Captain Ryan, who's even more sort of sadist and more masculine he's incredibly violent unnecessarily violent like when he shoots the dog at the start mm. no don't shoot the dog and he sees he sees conscience and feeling and emotion as being a fault so all those things that are seen as particularly feminine traits he sees as you know creating fault and problem in a person and he shows no emotion He's a classic unreconstructed male, isn't he, really? Absolutely. He's like all the worst bits of masculinity popped into one character. The other guys just kind of pivot around football and football and women. <laughs> um, so Captain Ryan shows, he shows no emotion. He's got nothing but contempt um, for anyone who might consider anybody else's feelings. And he sits back and enjoys the show in the house as the as the unit just you know slowly start to fall apart. He mocks um, Cooper for you know perhaps maybe having a bit of a thing with with Megan when she takes them back to the house. 
So they get to the house and it's all very nice and they start filling up the pans with water and they eat the uh, the the stew which we can all assume has got yeah. human flesh in it. Right. The meat is people. Yeah, the meat is people. Yeah. <laughs> um. So that's. <laughs> Again, I don't think I saw that the first time. That took a few watches for me to be like, oh, that's people stew. That's werewolf-made people stew. No, again, that has completely Delicious. not occurred to me. So great. <laughs> there you go. So you've got this very, very hyper-masculine group that are all talking about football. They're talking about their bollocks. They're scared of castration. You've got Sergeant Wells being... Not Sergeant Wells. Um, Pr- yeah. Sergeant Ryan, isn't he? Captain, Captain Ryan. Ryan, yeah. Being overly sadistic, having no feeling or emotion. And then Wells, he's the sort of representation of masculinity where he he just has to suffer for the good of everybody else. So he takes a lot of grief in his time. He watches his mate get blown up in Iraq. Mm. He sacrifices himself to to save the remaining men. He won't he won't even be <laughs> saved at the start, is he? He goes through the whole thing with the um what's it called? The super glue on his on his open wound and he's like telling Cooper to punch him out oh, yeah. so that he can deal with it. So he's very he's very manly but in a sort of sacrificing for the good of the crew kind of way. So a very different approach to masculinity that that Ryan is. So he his masculinity is played out through an almost an endurance and self-sacrifice, whereas Cooper's trying to save everyone. And it's just this really nice, a really well-explored setup of aspects of masculinity that can either be for the good or for the bad, either to be a complete bastard or to, you know, constantly be supportive of your team and then to eventually take one for the team and blow yourself and the rest of the werewolves up. And then... Our private Cooper, who survives at the end, he kind of walks the line between the two. So he he has he has feelings and he has emotion, but he's also very very steady and very sensible. And he sort of sits between these two polar opposites of the horribleness of masculinity, where you're just a bastard, and then masculinity where you need to save everybody. And he sort of sits nicely in the middle and kind of maybe falls in love with Megan a little bit. I don't know, possibly. Maybe she's just the first woman he's, he's encountered in a while. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> possibly, yeah. But And he admits that he's... Um, he says he's scared of women when they're all sat around talking mm. about their fears. He says, I'm scared mm. of women. But then when they do meet a woman, he's the only one that can actually talk to her. Yeah. Everyone else is just a bit... A lot useless. And this, I don't know, this sort of push and pull all the way through the movie mm. is which, which sort of side of masculinity or femininity is going to work or survive. The way that that all revolves around and pushes and pulls all the way through, I think is just really, really interesting. And, and as I said at the start of this rant, it's possibly the first time that I started mm. to be switched on to understanding these kinds of gender politics in a film or exploring it through a monster like a werewolf that is particularly or can be highly feminized yeah. and yeah. symbolically I mean, castrating monster as well can i can i kind of respond yes. to that a little bit so because when i like, as i said my kind of my experience of, of, of dog soldiers that i remembered being with mm-hmm. becomes to a male teacher mm-hmm. so i remember sort of sitting and thinking about those things but but it wasn't really on his radar in terms of dealing with it with the students um massively it wasn't entirely it just wasn't kind of a focus of his his kind of analysis and so I think when I picked it up I wasn't really for me either um but watching it this time and I'm and again I think you know because the film's what you know kind of almost 20 years old now, oh. and gosh <laughs> does it look it um 
is is just sort of being really struck by how in your face now that stuff all seems particularly the kind of the way that that she is set up as with the exception of the woman at the beginning um, who obviously doesn't ask for them? No. Oh, the couple in the tent at the beginning; those ones. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. That, that, yeah, but she, you know, she's the Megan is the only female character, um, and you know the kind of the construction of her monstrosity as intrinsically feminine mm. and linked to you know kind of everything that Barbara Creek talked about yeah. <laughs> just seemed so much you know kind of more. I don't know, simplistic, you know. Well, this is this is something that I uh, I remember objecting to on my first watch when she, because I, I was like, oh, I, I get that, and and then when she says it's my time of the month, and I'm, and I remember going, oh, yeah. that's one of the things that made me go, oh, you've just dropped a star in that horrible. It was just, it just, it, it was a brilliant mm. setup, and and like you say, Stella, structurally. It's brilliant. It's got. It works really well. It's got. Your protagonist is between the two stools. The things it's discussing is between hypermasculine Ryan and the feminine enemy, and he's you know somehow got to you know make his way between the two, and so 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 structurally it's brilliant. And then there's just 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 I mean that that line just stuck out to me on my very first watch and never I can never get over it especially because I guess maybe I was aware because Alan Moore had done a really amazing comic in Swamp Thing called The Curse which was about a female werewolf which calling it The Curse was about as far as he went to equating it to you know the time of the month yeah, Cycles. and he didn't need to say any more. <laughs> just it was called the curse, and it was about a female werewolf. And then to see it in somebody who possibly, because he's my vintage, he's a couple of years older than me, made me go. Mm, it's a bit. That's for me, for my taste. It's just too on the nose. It's just you could have just cut that line. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we're being hypercritical here. I don't want to go and be more critical because I like this movie a lot more than I did when well, I first saw it. I mean, weirdly. If I may cut in, I feel that I'm like right in the middle of all of you because, to be honest, the themes, the kind of uh, the the feminine themes and that kind of stuff, more or less went totally over my head. <laughs> I mean, ginger snaps, yes, maybe that's the 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 level of obvious you need to be. Whereas in this movie, I I mean, maybe it's just because I don't really think of werewolves as being a female coded monster. Um, I mean, I remember that one of the things that annoyed me... Because well, often they aren't, are they? But this is, this is a film that really draws Definitely on... Definitely are in this one, yeah. No, no, I mean, it maybe it may muddied the waters a little bit because you're right, Dan, they're, they're not... They're quite often a very masculine monster. They're the monster inside in a sort of Jekyll and Hyde kind of way. Yeah, savagery and all that stuff. For instance, Underworld, which we mentioned earlier, one of the things that I remember annoying me about that was that the vampires in it were male and female, but the werewolves were all male. And that was just the way they played it. I don't know even the Underworld mm. sequels, there are female werewolves who come into it. I, don't, I didn't pay much attention. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're quite... I've never seen Underworld, but werewolves are quite often, a, a, you know, saying, saying, you guys, you're precious true blood. It's very, or or in or in Twilight, they're very much, uh, you know. There's a simpering vampire on one side, and there's a full 
alpha male who happens to be a wolf on the other side. Yes, there are female werewolves, but it's very much, I'm a hairy man, <laughs> that, mm. that the werewolves signify. Mm. So maybe it's not entirely... I think the intention was there that the werewolves were quite feminized, but they're not. And I think the fact it was a domestic setting that they were defending is another part of that, mm. Yeah, you know, homemakers. Yeah. <laughs> the werewolves who are homemakers. I mean, again, which is all kind of... Um, off-screen imagination and maybe i just wasn't engaging with the text properly because it that those are all things that are, are there in the meaning and that um you know stella your interpretation is is well argued but it's just because i don't see it on the screen i don't see the making that home it doesn't occur to me that the, the stew is human stew um i just got it just <laughs> totally blindsided me hemlock grove's got the vampire and the werewolf sort of set up um and it's Hemlock Grove is kind of like it's not as bloody and as witty as True Blood, even though it's got one of the Skarsgård brothers in it playing a vampire. <laughs> um, but it's more grown up than than Twilight, so it's kind of Hemlock Grove kind of sits in the middle, and the vampire, the vampire is not necessarily is not the same sort of simpering. <sighs> wanker that he is in twilight i couldn't think of another word <laughs> um, but the, then the werewolf then the werewolves are um they're romany gypsy so and they can change at will so there's no need for any of the cycle business um and it is it's a male werewolf in hemlock grove so they it, it has a slightly and they end up they end up friends then they did sleep with each other at one point which is interesting um they're kind of friends and then enemies and then frenemies so i don't know hemlock grove does Despite not being the most exciting TV series, only three seasons long, um, it does some slightly more interesting things with the vampire-werewolf relationship mm. and what it could possibly, what they could do with it. Basically, the, were the vampire comes from a very, very rich family. The werewolf comes from a travelling Roman gypsy family mm. and they live in, a, in a, a, a trailer, essentially. And it's kind of, they shouldn't be friends because they're so different, but they, they end up being friends. Opposite side of the tracks. Yeah, <laughs> opposite side of the tracks. But it's, it's, you know, it's a good one. That's similar as, as to True Blood, though, and, and Wolf Blood on children's television. Oh, yeah. The, the mm. wolves, the wolf, I love Wolf Blood. But the... Um, oh, it's great. But, you know, the, the wolves, wolves, wolves and werewolves are always identified with, like, in that case, travellers in, in Wolf Blood, like, they're the, the true wolf bloods are sort of travelers who are from beyond the borders that live in the wilds you know they're the mm. honest folk mm. um they're honest people of the earth and they live the old ways they're sort of i guess pagan to the christian normies um, yeah, I mean, there's a pretty wider discussion, isn't there, about the way that these particular creatures tend to get coded as indigenous and. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but in, in, in this case, I think I think I think alien aliens looms large in this film, and I think as aliens was Sigourney Weaver, and the theme was motherhood. In this, it's yeah, it's essential. It's a very macho. It's it's a very it's it's a very macho bunch of people who are very likable. But very macho, yeah. and and yeah, tellingly, you've got Kevin McKidd in the middle. Who, like, what you always give your protagonists is you give them a devil on their shoulder and an angel on their shoulder, and he's got Sarge 
who's good masculinity, <laughs> and you've got Ryan, who's bad masculinity, and he's in the middle, being a bit of both. And his big thing is he's scared of women, and I mean, it does kind of fall apart a bit because because it's I don't know that our werewolves that feminine. <laughs> But the intent is there; yeah. it's very good. And and if I'd been a bit more aware of sort of film grammar twenty odd years ago, maybe I would have been a little bit more. Oh yeah, that's very clever because it is. It's very clever, and you can totally see why Neil Marshall. Neil Marshall, this was the film that made him. It's got some of the best best one liners. It has great one liners. Yeah, yeah, and and. and so many good lines. Give us some good lines, Stella. <laughs> uh, I hope I give you the yeah, shits. Yeah. <laughs> He's about to be eaten. I think the full quote is, I hope I give you the shits, you fucking wimp. Which yeah. I thought yeah. was wonderful. <laughs> and then he spits, doesn't he? And then the, the little Red Riding Hood quote. If, if you see the Red Riding Hood, I expect you to chin the bitch. <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful line. I mean, that that's, that's the thing I remember... He, just even in my review back back when I was wrong um, was was <laughs> that the 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 squaddies are just so well realized just and that's because yeah. Neil Marshall's dad yeah. was in the army so in my interview oh, yeah he talked he talked about that a lot he talks about the fact that I got a lot of war stories I got how soldiers are and he says it doesn't matter if you're fighting terrorists or you're on the streets of Belfast, or you're doing whatever you're doing, you've got gallows humour. If you're fighting terrorists or werewolves, it's literally like... Yeah. And I guess that's why Aliens captured so well as well. It was Vietnam in space. And yeah. this was... This is how yeah. squaddies would be, and they are so... I don't think there's a better... It's one of the best depictions of British squaddies on TV. Maybe 1971 yeah. or something he... more recently. But it's just... It's so well done. Absolutely brilliant depiction of squaddies. Because some of his watch is like, what are you going to do? And he said, well, well, I'll count, won't I? <laughs> and I was like, that's so sweet. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think one thing that absolutely gets this is one thing I, you know, I loved at the time is Sean Pertwee is fucking amazing. To Kevin McKidd's great, and you're right, he should have had a great. He should have, I don't know, earned even more millions than he's earned. But Sean, Sean Pertwee, <laughs> did I say Connery? Sean Pertwee. He's absolutely brilliant. I've always loved Sean Pertwee. Meeting him for yeah. this was was a fucking honour. I love the bit where he he, scree- he says, "Knock me out." That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every <laughs> every single out. line he says <laughs> yeah, is like fantastic. brilliant. It, there's not there's not a line in it that's delivered wrong. Yeah, it's absolute treat, isn't it? When when we when we met him at the junket for it. He was so excited by this film. He absolutely loved this film. And he kind of knew Neil Marshall was destined for greatness, that this film was going to... Because they made the film, and when I met them, Pathé had just picked it up. So suddenly this nothing of a film that they'd spent five or six years trying to get made got picked up by Pathé. And that's suddenly I was like, oh, shit. You know, after being a film editor in Newcastle for so long, and you know, he was thirty odd when I met him, because he's just a bit older than me. So he was, uh, so he was, um, 
you know, so, so, but yeah, but I just remember Sean Purvey just being so excited by the, just like loving being part of it. As he should be, yeah. Oh, it's just, it's one of my very, very favourites. From, from what I hear, because I, I never really met Kevin McKidd properly, it was just at the party um, for the, uh, for, for the, for the launch. But, um, but I remember interviewing after I'd, after I'd published my crap review and kind of, lovely 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 two-page spread and then an awful review like a dickhead um one of the actors who lived in middlesbrough um leslie simpson um who was in the descent as a crawler and he's sort of done lots of other little things like that but he phoned me up and sort of said can you i don't know why you've given it two stars and i was a bit like i don't know why i've either but i have and so me i did another article the next next issue with him and hearing about the shoot from him was brilliant because he was just like Kevin McKidd was amazing and Sean Perry was amazing. But Kevin Kevin McKidd apparently turned up on set just going, Werewolf film, Werewolf film, <laughs> <laughs> and just wow. uh, and so so that's kind of where the energy came from. I think it was like lads on no. tour, Werewolf film, and I think they had the best fucking time mm. making that movie. Yeah, yeah, it looks like they did. Um, no, no, there's, yeah. there's there's absolutely loads to love in this film, and and it's not a perfect movie, but Jesus. No, but it's such an achievement on yeah, so yeah. little money, so little resources. Kirsty says, yeah, yeah, you're quite right, Kirsty. It does look every bit of of nearly twenty years old, <laughs> but at the same time, I liked that mm-hmm. look of it when I rewatched yeah. it. I, I remember nineties yeah. yeah. movies looking like that and you know it, it looks like it it looks fairly good it could it you know it stands comparison to other films of that time in its look and it's obviously really ambitious with the action scenes that he's trying to get across and a lot of them work i'm aware that we're running out of time for our recording now so i just want to mention a couple of things before i ask you all to feed in other kind of things you want to desperately mention before we finish uh, yeah, it's a great a movie for Sean Pertwee. Bless him, you know. I, I think it might be the high point of his career as well. I don't think he did anything else as good. He went from this to a, a, many more very low-budget British horror films. No, 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 Dan, no, no, no. Have you not seen him in Gotham? Again, you're dismissing TV. He's amazing in Gotham. Uh, it, well, all right. Yeah, but is Gotham good? I love Gotham. We don't have time to have this discussion. Um, uh, <laughs> before this, of course, he was in Event Horizon, so I always kind of thought it was a bit of a, a downward slide. But you, but no, oh, you know, yeah. Gotham has its fans. Um, I do want to mention Darren Morfitt, who plays Spoon. I always forget he's in this movie, but I'm always so pleased to see him. I love him because he's my favourite Jesus. Where, where was he, Jesus? <laughs> He was he was Jesus in a in a thing in two thousand and seven called the Manchester Passion, which was a live modern day version of the story of uh, of the Passion of the Christ, illustrated with man, with music from Manchester bands. So it's like when Judas, played by Tim Booth out of James, betrays Jesus, oh he God. wanders the streets in despair, <laughs> singing "Heaven knows I'm miserable now," and at the end of it. When Je- when Jesus is uh, you know crucified and then rises again, Darren Morfitt appears at the top of uh, the Albert Hall and sings, "I am the resurrection and I am the life." God, 
Well, of course. Kill me now. I love him. <laughs> it might well be absolutely dreadful, but he was great, and I'll always remember him for that. <laughs> sounds terrible. That's two people who played Jesus we've mentioned in this podcast. I mentioned I mentioned Jim Caviezel. Oh, yeah. I know. Three, three people, then, because Michael Sheen. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, famously. Yeah. Also did a passion, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... So wow. we're wrapping up, yeah. folks. So this is this it, is the the Jesus podcast. Well, yeah, oh, so it's clearly gone that way. Um, is there anything yeah. else anybody wants to mention before we finish? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. <laughs> I still stand by my basic review, which is I wish the tone they just got the tone slightly better. I would have preferred less slapstick or the bit that I re- always really hate. Even though, even though I wish I give you the shit. I enjoy. I enjoyed the slapstick though. I don't like the whole punching and throwing stuff, and it just seems. Mm. Well, that's what you'd end up doing, though, with, with a werewolf. I can get him. <laughs> no, but the, te- the tension's just the tension's just gone. I would have preferred it. I, you know, I would. I just would have preferred. I still stand by the, my basic instinct, my basic gut reaction to. Oh, it was so good and full of tension, and then it went a bit silly. But silly's okay. And the silliness is still it's still it's still fun to watch. But I still think, I still think we're waiting for a proper, aliens but werewolves instead of aliens movie. And it was almost there, but not quite. And then they'll all just say it's a rip-off of Dog Soldiers. Well, good. Dog Soldiers was a rip-off of everything else. So that's the of cycle of life. Of course. All right, it's the end of the show. Let's all sum up our different attitudes to Dog Soldiers in one word. Or maybe a compound word. The one that I want to say is rip-roaring. <laughs> Stella, what would you say? Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Ian? Um, better than when I first... Saw it. No, I do really, I do really like it. It's fun. It's fun. Um, and my God, um, well done, Neil Marshall. It sets up a masterpiece. Yeah. I hope he doesn't remember. I hope he doesn't remember who I am. I hope I meet him one day and go, and he doesn't need to go. You're that cunt. Sorry. <laughs> we'll work on that. Um, one last word then the very last word goes to Kirsty what would you say mine would be yes but alright that's interesting that's a tantalising note alright then maybe maybe we should (laughs) talk about this more some other time alright thanks folks that was Dog Soldiers Oh, brilliant (laughs) (laughs) hello Howard hello Dan how are you I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm superb. Excellent. You always are. I have it here. The Bag of Death. In this film we have pretty much every genre film in the English language that you and I have both seen. Who knows what will come out of it this week. So, I'm producing something. And let me open it. It says... Oh, Frankenstein created woman. Oh, well, we have talked about this, haven't we? When we were doing years and years and years and years ago, when we were doing the. Uh, when we Frank- talked about the Curse of Frankenstein, we kind of gave a quick overview of all the sequels. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's yeah. worth it's worth revisiting. I haven't watched it for a long time, but it is one of my favourites. 
um, of the Hammer films, I would say. So I, I probably remember most of the details. Um, go on, Howard. It sounds like you're itching to say something. Itching? Yes, I'm, I'm itching. No, I, I, it's, a, it's an interesting one because this is the only kind of film where Baron Frankenstein, first of all, in this film, he's quite sympathetic. He's much more the misguided scientist than the ruthless kind of... Um, villain that he is in, in some of the other ones. Like, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, which is my favourite Frankenstein film. He is definitely a villain. So we so, should just clarify for people who don't know, this is the fourth of Hammer's Frankenstein films. Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed was the fifth. Um, this came out in, I think, 1966. And yes. it stars Peter Gushing as Frankenstein. Um... I think he's only a Baron in the Hammer series. He's Baron Frankenstein. Um, it, uh, Terence Fisher, who directed The Curse and Revenge of Frankenstein, returns to the series with this film, having not directed uh, The Evil of Frankenstein. And it's got a supporting cast, including Thorley Walters, Susan Denberg, uh, Robert Morris, um, Duncan Lamont, and... Uh, it's it's a really nice cast. So, anyway, that, that just kind of sets it up in the series. Um, the other thing is, at the end of the previous Frankenstein film, The Evil of Frankenstein, which seemed to be fairly narratively unconnected to the earlier films, at the end of that film, Frankenstein apparently burns to death. But um, Hammer decided to make another one anyway. I'm glad they did. Um, but exactly how much connection it has to... Well, basically, to any of the earlier films in the series is up for debate. Um, Howard, um, please continue. Well, yeah, the continuity is strange because um, there is sort of a continuity, but Baron Frankenstein always, always seems to be every film in a different place with different people. And, he, you know, sometimes he does die at the end of the film, one film, and then he's kind of very much alive at the beginning of the next one. And, and Whereas with the Dracula films... There was always kind of like a, um, you know, the way he died in one film would be uh, alluded to in the in the in the following film. So when, for instance, when he dies in um, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, falling on the cross, yeah, in the next film you see the cross and Roy Kinnear gets the blood. So there is a kind of um, continuity. Whereas with the Frankenstein films, there seems much less. He just seems to be in different places at different times and everything. But anyway, in this film. I think it's interesting because this film doesn't really have a monster in the traditional kind of hammer sense. He doesn't build a body from body parts that he normally does. Uh, instead, he kind of transfers a soul from one person to another, so it's all quite metaphysical. And that kind of makes it really interesting. And also, I suppose the, the big selling point is that the, the creature that he creates is female. Well, yeah, I mean, the title is Frankenstein Created Woman. Firstly... I've re- I remember once I was watching the start of this movie, which I really like mainly because the music's great. It's one of James Bernard's best scores for a Hammer film, I think. Um, but I left it on paused uh, on the title screen while I went off to do something else. And my mum came in and looked and saw this screen just saying Frankenstein created woman. And she was kind of disgusted. And I, I realised that is quite an insulting title, isn't it, really? If you're equating um, femininity with monstrousness. But, of course, it, the reason it's called that is because 
a couple of years previous to this there was the Roger Vadim film and yeah. God Created Woman um, was that Bridget Bardot? Yeah it's got Bridget Bardot yeah. and, and Hammer were kind of spoofing that title it actually doesn't make much sense for this film especially because he doesn't really create a creature in the movie um yeah that he he transfers a soul into a body that already exists he didn't create that body the body happens to be female but and also um the kind of famous one of the most famous images for, from the movie is frankenstein carrying um susan denberg who plays the title character um after having transferred the soul, but that scene isn't in the film. No. Um, it kind of fades to black and she's a corpse, and then it fades up and, and she's alive, and we don't see how he did it. And I don't think anybody knows why that sequence was cut, because it does look like, look like it was filmed. So why was it cut? I can't imagine. I mean, you kind of think that scene would be the big set piece of the film. Usually the creation scene is one of, kind of the big scenes in any... Frankenstein film and um, to edit it out I don't know whether it just didn't look very good or, or I, I don't know why you've put that scene out when, and especially when they use those photographs as the publicity photographs it's bizarre I mean well what's even weirder is that nobody knows it you know presumably if it was something some technical reason like uh, you know, there was just a problem with all the film stock and they couldn't use those scenes. Or if it was a censor reason, like the BBFC insisted that for some reason that scene, nudity or something, was unacceptable in it. We'd know that. But yes. nobody seems to know, and that's intriguing. Um, but despite all this, um, what is the storyline of Frankenstein Created Woman, Howard? Well, um, that's a good question. <laughs> No, Baron Frankenstein is, he's, he's given up assembling body parts now, which was always like the big thing in all the Frankenstein films, finding the brain and finding the, the arms and everything. Uh, and now he's kind of transferring souls. So he's doing this experiment where he can transfer, he can sort of, isn't it at the beginning, he's sort of locked in a freezer or something and his soul can't leave his body or something. Well, at the beginning, Frankenstein and his assistant, played by Thorley Walters, who plays a character called Dr. Hertz, and they are conducting this experiment, and basically Frankenstein is experimenting upon himself, himself as well. You know, this is something which he doesn't normally do. He's using himself as the guinea pig, and he basically, so I think, has essentially killed himself. Yes. And then uh, Dr. Hertz revives him, but they're able to um, empirically measure the fact that his soul... Um, had not left his body in that time. So I think he, he kind of proves that you can be dead for a certain amount of time and your soul is still there so you can be revived. I think that's the idea. Um, yeah. and that's an idea. I'm not sure it makes much <laughs> No, it's, it's very weird. Very yeah. weird. But And, it, and it's an, a weird direction for him to go in, in terms of the direction of his research, because it doesn't seem to have many practical applications but I they kind of think they were trying to find a different way of doing things and they they had maybe in the 60s you know at that time it was all fairly kind of a, it was fairly pot pot influenced <laughs> kind of like, 
Uh, so anyway, there's this girl who's who's disfigured and she works in a cafe and um, she's got a boyfriend. The boyfriend's uh, dad, played by the brilliant Dr. Lamont, was executed, so he's got that stigma. And then these three kind of like public school boy. Yes. Uh, pretty awful people. Um, yes, it's, it's pe- played by some some notable actors from later years. Uh, Peter Blythe from Rumpole of the Bailey is one of them, and Derek Folds, who was later Mr. Derek, opposite Basil Brush on children's TV in the 70s, um, is another one. Um, and then there's a third one who I can't remember. Um, so anyway, these three kind of like public school boys, and they they make fun of her. And there's this one of my favourite scenes is this brilliant fight because I do love fist fights. One of my favourite things in films is a fist fight. Right. Uh, I think that goes from when I was such a big fan of Batman. <laughs> okay. They'd always do the big fight at the end with Adam West and uh, Burt Ward punching off. <laughs> Pow! Kablam! Zowie! Love that! I absolutely love that. And so uh, I'm always up for a fist fight if there's one. I think, uh, and this is really good one where he kind of knocks them all out and everything. Um, uh, but then he gets kind of like, and then... Well, yeah, Frankenstein's um, assistant Hans, played by Robert Morris, uh, fights all the public school boys because they're making fun of Christina. Um, but then he, I think, what is one of them killed? Oh, no, her, her father is accidentally killed by them, I think. But they are able to... Um, throw the blame onto Hans and he is then tried for the murder and Frankenstein comes to his defence in the uh, courtroom which is really good scene and really shows a different side to Frankenstein's character because he's basically playing a character witness isn't he and he's um, he's testifying that these two young people are good souls who um, no pun intended um, who, who should not be blamed for this um, well, it's an interesting. First of all, there's a great bit where he's just flicking through the Bible, which is supposed to be, you know, where he's taking the oath and everything. But I thought, well, this is this is very different because usually Frankenstein's killing people. Usually, he wants dead bodies. Mm. You know, sort of like here, he's trying to save somebody's life. Yeah, um, and it's kind of like we see a different side. It's it's probably uh, Frankenstein at his most kind of sympathetic. And it is. Of. Oh, definitely, I'd say. And um, actually, Peter Cushing is not in the film all that much, considering he's the star. Not as much as he in some of the others. Um, there's quite long scenes, all, all the stuff in the with the three public school boys and everything, and, and he's not in those scenes, so he's not. And I think we we should say the opening sequence in which Hans's father, Duncan Lamont, is sent to the uh, guillotine is a flashback, so he's not in that either, but it is a brilliant opening sequence. Yes. Um, it really I mean, sets a wonderful it's, mood. It's absolutely wonderful, as he always is. But it's, uh, I, um, he's not in it, you know, I mean, he's in it all the way through, but he's not, perhaps his presence isn't quite as... as well, it, it's really Christine and, and Hans's story, and it's about once... I mean, we're going to... Well, I don't want to spoil the story for people who, who've not seen it, no. because it is a nicely told piece of um, exaggerated fantasy storytelling, and it's rather unlikely, but it's it's quite uh, beguiling. Um, but I would say, you know, the later half of the film is very much about Christine, um, and, you know, she 
uh, ends up with a different soul because she becomes part of Frankenstein's soul transference experiment. Um, and also she's she's played by uh, Susan Denberg, who is a, a Scandinavian model, I think. Um, and she's dubbed by Nikki van der Zyl, who dubbed many of the women in the James Bond films at the time. And, uh, and but, you know, she... The combination of, of, of Van der Zyl's voice and uh, Denberg's appearance uh, creates an effective character, and um, you know, in a way, it's a, it's a kind of it's a tragic love story, really, uh, with Frankenstein on the sidelines, and I think that it's it's quite effectively and uh, affectingly done as such, and also I think there's a link in it. In terms of Frankenstein's long-term character development, I know we kind of talk about how there is uh, not much continuity between most of these movies. However, and and he is very different as a character in different films, but there is a sense, to me at least, in this one, that he does his best to try and be a good, supportive man who's concerned about the uh, welfare of others. But without giving away too much about the ending, it doesn't really work out. And I think there is a strong sense that at the end he just goes, well, it's not worth doing that then, is it? And then in the next film, he's absolutely the most horrible he ever was. Yeah. Um, no, I think in, in this film, yes. I mean, Peter Cushing is such a great actor that he can, he can play absolutely ruthless and in one film and be very sympathetic in another. So, yes, he is, and he sort of he survives at the end. And he, does, he, do, he doesn't kill anybody he doesn't allow anybody to be killed he's not it's not that sort of film somehow it's it's sort of like as if he's trying to do something that is for the betterment of mankind and he, he's just perhaps misguided um and perhaps a little bit arrogant sometimes but he's, he's in this he seems like a good person and he's trying to help and he does try and save hans's life in the, in the courtroom he's you know in other films he might want hans dead in order to get his body in this film he's definitely trying to keep him alive kind of thing so yeah so it's interesting. It's it, it's one that's it's kind of feels different in a way to the others. It's got a different mood. Yes, it's a melancholy film, which the others aren't so much. Even though they might be darker and more violent, but this one has a sense of sadness about it, and I think that it probably is my favourite as a result of that. I do like it. I never used to like it because I thought it was a bit kind of airy fairy. But as as time's gone on, I've sort of kind of appreciated what it is, and it's it's got the, it does have this kind of romantic feel to it, this and kind of slightly lyrical feel, and it, and it is kind of like you know you, you sort of feel for for people. You've kind of it's not just about the shock effects or about all the, all the gruesome operations, you know, and, and and the making of the monster. It's it's about it's kind of a sad yeah it is a melancholy film it's quite a you know it's sort of it doesn't really end well for anybody no. <laughs> sort of, kind of, it's not a happy ending as such um which is what makes which is what makes it interesting i think it's sort of well yeah i mean um i know we try and avoid spoilers but i feel like look it is the third Sorry, it's the fourth movie in six movies about the same characters, so in a way this isn't so much of a spoiler. But it's possibly the only Frankenstein movie... Oh no, it's not the only one, there's one other, but this is one of the saddest endings in the series, and it's one of the ones in which Frankenstein doesn't die, <laughs> or doesn't seem to be about to die. 
Um, and I think that says something about the, the kind of tone of it. Yes, there's a sense of, at the end, again, don't want to give it away, but he kind of just, he sees what happens and then he kind of walks away rather sadly. And it's and, and you kind of feel for him and you feel for, I, uh, there's a sense of tragedy to it, which which isn't in the other films. I think this, it's just kind of a bit more emotional, a bit more emotionally invested in the characters, yeah. perhaps, because they are, so many of them, Hans and Christina, and are, are hard done by. They are, you know, um, victims of other people's cruelty and, and yeah. And I think that the script, which was written by John Elder, who is Anthony Hines, the the kind of initial producer behind uh, most of Hammer's horror early successes, and and kind of directed the style of them and the attitude of them. But later, he retired from the production side of things and just wrote scripts under the name under the name John Elder. Um, I think it's not the most amazing script, but it, I think it spoke to people in the production. I think it spoke to Cushing and it spoke to uh, probably the director, Terence Fisher, and certainly I think it, it affected, again, James Bernard, the composer, because I think that the music that he produced is the most heartfelt of anything that he did, really. It's much more kind of lyrical and much more gentle music. So. Yeah, Um and I think all those things together, that's why it's one of my favourites. So um, it's it's out on DVD, it's in various box sets. Um, it probably turns up on the Horror Channel now and again, I think. I think, actually... Go on. It'll be on Talking Pictures this week. Oh, right. Wow. I think this week at the time of recording, which, you know, who knows what this week well, will be when, when the listener hears this, but... Um, I'm saying this is... <laughs> yeah. Um... No, uh, this film, yeah, I was going to say, this film is from Hammer's kind of golden period when they made Plague of the Zombies and Dracula, Prince of Darkness and Crater Mass in the Pit and, and it was, I think it was that kind of like when they were really at their height and doing really interesting things. And this uh, this is an attempt to do something slightly different, which I think succeeds. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I think so. And... Um, uh, I would recommend it. I, m- I remember when I um, I sat down when I was at university with a friend of mine who wasn't really a Hammer fan, and we watched um, a back-to-back uh, viewing of this and then Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, which is obviously a very, very much a contrasting kind of movie, even though it's the same character, um, theoretically. And the main takeaway that that my friend had was that they were both just really good stories and very entertaining movies and um and that's what you get from the best hammer films you know that they, they don't have a lot of fat on them that's why i am a fan of hammer um now more than ever i think because i can see how much skill and um talent goes into the making of those films and just how good they are and how professionally made they are and how talented so many of the people involved, like James Bernard and like Terence Fisher. Uh, and of course, this film, like all these films, is worth watching just to see the wonder that is Peter Cushing. Yes. And also, um, I think this might have been the last Hammer film, or certainly the last Frankenstein film, to be made at Bray Studios, their spiritual home, which was the country house that they converted into a studio and made all their early movies. 
such a small studio and you know that they converted the the same very limited space into all kinds of interior and exterior locations using a lot of the same set pieces you know it has been argued quite convincingly that the production designer Bernard Robinson was a genius and and you know he designed this film and um yeah it's uh it's it's a great example of of Hammer and it's um very much a recommendable film I think let me just mention there's also a quick cameo appearance by the wonderful character actor Colin Jevons who is still with us oh yes I've, he was in everything when I was growing up and he's he's just one of those great character actors. He's only got a bit part, but um, he's in it. And I'm pleased to say he's still alive, as of time of recording. God bless Colin Jevons, one of the lustrates of note. Yes. Um, and in this movie, he plays a priest who enters the action on a very little donkey. Yes. Where you almost think, it would probably be as easy just to walk, mate. Um <laughs> Yeah, but perhaps he just liked being on the donkey. Yeah. See, one of the great things about doing these podcasts is I can just say, pay my little tribute to all these great actors that I, I used to love, like Colin Jevons, and um, so and and the people we've mentioned in other podcasts, people like John Carson and people like that, and, and yeah, yeah, you know, Andrew Keir, and they're just you know I just love what they do, and I, I, I no, I am yeah. I'm in full agreement. Well, there we go, my friend. That's Frankenstein Created Woman and another recommendation from us from out of The Bag of Death. Thank you so much, Howard. Yes, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Until next time, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, dear listener, that was Howard and myself with The Bag of Death. And before that... It was Stella, Ian, Kirsty and myself talking about dog soldiers. Hope you enjoyed both of those features. Now, just to wind up the episode, you get me on my own again, just with some recommendations for Halloween viewing. And to aid me in this, I have an old friend of mine, the Radio Times. So, there are some interesting movies appearing on streaming over the next a couple of days. In fact, some of them might be available already. Number one is um, Ready or Not, a film which I've recommended on this podcast before. In fact, Stella and I were talking about it uh, just last week, or not before. It appears on Disney Plus from the 29th of October, so it'll certainly be available as soon as you hear this. And it's terrific fun. Directed by... Uh, Tyler Gillett and Matt bettinelli Olpan, the guys behind the new Scream film, and uh, their involvement in this movie definitely bodes well for that. Another film that's coming to streaming um, over the weekend is It Chapter 2, which is available on Amazon Prime. And actually it's been available for a little while, I think, but it's worth mentioning now in case you've never seen either of the It films, which I haven't, I have to admit. Um, because It Chapter 1 is broadcasting on British television, Freeview, tomorrow night. Um, that's tomorrow night. Hopefully if you're listening to this on Friday the 29th. So, on Saturday the 30th of October at 9pm on ITV2, 
you can see it and then you can watch it chapter two on amazon prime sticking with streaming we've got us on amazon prime i have seen that that was uh, director jordan peele's follow-up to get out it's not as good but it's an interesting and enjoyable film with some really striking stuff in it so that's a, a qualified recommendation there's a classic hammer horror film collection available on BritBox. There's a few films there, all of which I've seen and enjoy. Scars of Dracula, The Reptile, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, and Rasputin the Mad Monk. If I had to pick one to recommend, it would be Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, in which Ralph Bates and Martin Bezik play the male and female incarnations of the, uh, the title character. And there are the director, Roy Ward Baker, achieves a terrific transformation sequence. Um, largely done using mirrors, I think. Um, it's a while since I've seen the film, but it, I just remember being stunned by it. It's a 1971 movie that really holds up well in the visual department and also has a lovely score by David Whittaker. Um, whether or not it holds up in the sexual politics department, um, I wouldn't like to comment, but um, I remember enjoying it when I saw it ten years ago. Um, so going to uh, Freeview Digital Television in the UK then. So we've got the the um, Horror Channel's uh, weekend-long Universal um, Horror Film Marathon. So that includes... Um, uh, Dracula from 1930, Frankenstein from 1931, uh, The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, uh, The Mummy, is that 31? Um, most of these films are 30s. Um, the Mummy's Hand, which is the, the first sequel to The Mummy, which is arguably better than the original movie, although cheaper and uh, dirtier but you know that that might make it actually better um also you've got the wolfman and then you've got the creature from the black lagoon and the revenge of the creature both of which are mid-50s movies and unlike all the other movies those two i've never seen uh, so that would be those will be the ones I'll, I'll be tempted to catch up with. Or oh, you've also got Frankenstein meets the Wolfman as well. Um, I've never seen that one either. Um, all the others I've seen before. But um, yeah, I thought I'd give those a mention. I mentioned last week in my recommendations, um, Talking Pictures TV and their regular, um, their regular slot called Cellar Club with Caroline Monroe that takes place on Friday nights from 9. This week coming up on Friday, they've got something unusual. I think it's their first premiere. It's a movie that has possibly not been seen on any other TV channel. Um, and it's quite a recent movie. It's 2018's Boily Rectory. Um, an interesting looking mixture of live action and animation documentary and drama set in the reputed most haunted building in Britain, Boyley Rectory. It stars 
Reese Shearsmith and Jonathan Rigby. I haven't seen it, but um, I remember hearing an interview with the director on an episode of the Evolution of Horror podcast, and it sounded fascinating. I've just never got around to it, so that's one to look out for too. But going back to Halloween weekend, oh, we've got The Exorcist screening on BBC Two, and therefore on BBC iPlayer for the next month. And that's on Saturday the 30th at 10.40pm. That's Ian's favourite movie, so consider it recommended um, as if he was here. Um, I love it too, and if you haven't seen it, do. Halloween, John Carpenter's 1978 original, is on film 4 on the same night. And The Awakening, um, a ghost story period piece co-written by Stephen Volk, a friend of the podcast, is on uh, on the same night on BBC One. Oh, the one film I didn't mention from the Horror Channel's Universal Monster Marathon is The Invisible Man, which is on Sunday afternoon, 1pm. And then a couple of films that we've covered in detail in other episodes. Rosemary's Baby by Roman Polanski. That's on Halloween night itself, Sunday the 31st, on Great Movies. And you won't have heard it yet, but we're covering it in an upcoming episode. Um, We've already partially recorded that one, and as soon as it's fully recorded, it will go on our Patreon feed. And then a bit later, it will appear on our normal feed. And then, on the same night, on BBC Two, there is that great favourite of ours, What We Do in the Shadows, the original New Zealand movie. Now, it's going to be on the BBC iPlayer for a month following that, so take the opportunity to catch up with it. Also, I've been meaning to mention this for a few weeks, uh, the whole series or at least the first two series, soon to be joined, I think, by the third of the TV version, are available in the UK on Disney Plus now. I think listeners who are familiar with this podcast probably know that I quite like Disney Plus, um, and I tend to recommend things on there. And uh, yeah, it's all there. The first two series are all there, and it's, well, as as you'll know if you've heard our episode, It's an absolute hoot that we love, so go and check that out. Now, I did mention that um, some of this stuff will be appearing on our Patreon feed upcoming. I've just added to the feed um, a discussion uh, that Kirsty, Ian and I had about the 1979 movie When a Stranger Calls. Now, that will be available on the main feed of the podcast in a few weeks, but if you want to hear it now, go to our Patreon page and subscribe to us um, for a couple of pounds a month. It will be very, very much appreciated because it really helps us to offset the costs of producing the podcast, which are not huge, but nevertheless real. So it it, it really does help, and and we're very grateful for anything Um, we get in terms of support so that's there now and the Rosemary's Baby episode will be added to the Patreon in a few weeks 
and then at a later point will appear on the podcast's normal free feed. So you'll get to listen to this stuff, whatever you do, but if you want to get a bit of early access, then please consider subscribing. Okay, that's the end of this episode. Um, it was Halloween week, so we, I didn't want to let you down, even though uh, myself and the other hosts were unable to get together to record any current segments this week, but hopefully you've, you've heard from all of us, and it's been a pretty good value uh, episode, which is what I thought you deserved for Halloween weekend. Now, next week... I think we're going to have a week off. Possibly not from recording, but from uh, releasing episodes. But we will be back before long with something I know not what. All right. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And as I said at the beginning of the episode, have a very happy, very spooky Halloween. Because you know what happens as soon as Halloween's gone. Well, we get to look forward to Christmas ghost stories. And that's, well, that's another story. All right, thank you, everybody. And you'll be hearing from us again soon. Bye. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Stella Gaynor. Ian Winterton. Kirsty Warrow, Howard Whittock, and T.D. Velasquez. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at leecushingpod. Follow us on Twitter at andnowpodcast or at leecushingpodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash andnowpodcast. And now the podcast stops.